Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. I felt like I sang last time, so I like sang a little bit that time. Maybe I shouldn't do it every time, but we're... Did you just hear that lightning? Yeah, I hear the thunder. Okay. <laughs> Mother Nature's telling me not to sing the intro, so I won't do that next time. I don't know. If it gets us more listens, keep doing it. <laughs> My voice definitely does not get us more <laughs> Okay. Today, we'd be sipping on some coffee I actually found from Instagram. It is from Stumptown Coffee Roasters out of Portland, but lucky for me, it was also on Amazon and it was also at the Nature's Food Patch next to my house. (laughs) (laughs) We are drinking the Holler Mountain, which I feel like I can't say that without being like, all right, we're drinking the Holler Mountain, (laughs) y'all. It's really good and it's described as creamy and caramely. Caramely? Caramelly? No, caramelly. Caramelly. And I got it because Erica do be loving her flavor, so I wanted to make sure she was covered on this I feel like you're a huge caramel girl. I do. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. That is true. You're more of a hazelnut gal. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to try the hairbender next. I just think that I like the name. (laughs) They have really cool names, and they have really cool packaging. Mm Mm-hmm. And did I say they were out of Portland? Yeah. Which is a cool place. So... They do like a subscription service thing too. So if you're interested in getting some coffee every month, sign up for their subscription service. Yeah, it's really good. I think you guys will really enjoy it. If you're looking for a new coffee, check out Stucktown. I'm drinking mine with some pumpkin creamer because it's September Mm -hmm. and I can do what I want to do. Yeah. And we're always looking for new coffees. So if you do have any recommendations, hit us up on social media at Crime on Caffeine. You can head over to our website. And if you buy us a coffee, thank you very much. And we will send some Crime on Caffeine things your way. Yes. And we'll give you a shout out in the episode, of course. Pause. I must drink my coffee. (laughs) There's something in my throat this morning, guys. And I'm trying to push it down with hot coffee. Is it working? It works for a little bit, and then all of a sudden I got a frog again. Mm. It's too early for this. (laughs) It's never too early for murder. Speaking of murder, do we have any news? We do have some updates with uh, Lori Vallow. We love her. (laughs) A few different things. So, first off, something that I found was kind of a little wild... Just a little recap, JJ and Tylee, they were last seen in September of 2019. That's when, you know, they were murdered. Apparently, an employee from their school called the Department of Child Services in February of 2019, and it was never investigated. And then another update for this case, so... Chad's family actually did an interview. This is the first time that they're coming out and speaking with 48 Hours. This aired on Wednesday, September 1st. And so basically they were saying that Chad was innocent. It was all Lori and she came into their lives and just like ruined him and said that, you know, he wasn't responsible for putting the children there. They were saying, why would he bury them in his own backyard? They were also saying that they were told by the coroner when Tammy Daybell, their mother, passed away that she had died from asphyxiation. 
And they said, one of the children, Garth Daybell said, they told me that she'd been asphyxiated, but we never saw an autopsy. And Mark Daybell said, asphyxiation doesn't necessarily mean smothered. According to my understanding, it just means the breath was interrupted. And in the end, she wasn't able to breathe. And according to that, there's more facts we need. Okay, well, then why did you say that you didn't want an autopsy? Because that's Chad's story is that the children said that they didn't want the autopsy. And they're sitting here saying, we need more information. We never saw an autopsy. Okay, well. Is it the children's responsibility to say whether they want one or not? It's the family's. But they're... still. Yeah, I don't know. They're saying that the dad had nothing to do with it. They were saying that they think it was just Lori and Alex Cox. If you want to watch that, um, check that out. I'm sure it's on YouTube by now. But they are maintaining their father's innocence. And, I mean, it's interesting because they even say that, like, Chad believed that people's bodies were overtaken and their spirit all the whack stuff they believe they were like saying like oh yeah he believes that then why would he not why do you think he didn't do this i don't know so we'll see what happens with that i think Lori vallow is supposed to be in the mental health facility for like another week We'll see what happens Maybe with that. Maybe should stay a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we will give you guys more updates when we know more, but things should be happening soon. Well, good to know. Great update. <laughs> well, then, without further ado, let's get up into today's case. Yes, let's. For today's case, we are going to, you know, hop on over to the other side of the pond. We are in the UK. Oh. I think this is I think this is our first UK case. Yes, for our loyal oh. UK listeners, this one's for you guys. Yes. This one's for the lads <laughs> and the lasses. We actually do have okay. some very loyal UK listeners, so thank you so much to you guys for always yes. tuning in. All right. So, today we are going to talk about the UK's youngest murderers. Kim Edwards, and Lucas Markham. At just 14 years old, they claimed their name, committing what is known as the Twilight Murders. Love me some some Twilight. And if you're thinking, is it that Twilight? And how does that go with murder? Yes, it is that Twilight. (laughs) And I will tell you how it goes with that. It is wild. So buckle up. Kim grew up in the town of Spalding, which is located in southern Lincolnshire, England, with her mother Elizabeth and her younger sister Katie. Unfortunately, in 2008, when Kim was about five years old, she got into an argument with her mother Elizabeth and things got pretty heated. It did get to the point where Elizabeth ended up hitting Kim pretty badly, like punching her daughter in the face. She felt terrible enough that she actually reported herself to social services. This resulted in the removal of Kim and her sister Katie from her custody just temporarily. Clearly, things were not going well at her household. Anyway, this did not solve the issue of the arguing between Kim and Elizabeth. Their relationship was still very strained because Kim was almost positive that her mother favored her younger sister, Katie. It's said that she grew up thinking she was always second best. I really should have brought my glasses in here. I'm going to zoom. It's like one of those adult phones where you like look and 
It's like one word on each line of their screen because <laughs> the text the is, so, is big. so big. <laughs> I just had to do that with my kids. <laughs> I'm turning 28 and I can't even read. Later on in her childhood, she would threaten to run away or even went as far as to write suicide letters to her mother, explaining her internal struggle. Elizabeth had Kim psychiatrically assessed, but there were no results. In 2013, she accused her mother of trying to strangle her, and this charge was denied by both Elizabeth and her sister, Katie. So things were not looking up for this family's relationship status. There was always some kind of issue going on with Kim and her mother. Um, I find it very interesting that they deemed her mentally stable. The psychiatric assessment had no results. That's nuts. When you think about it later. Just remember that. You can imagine this only made the relationship with Kim worse, and so she started acting out. But the turning point was really when she started dating a boy named Lucas Markham at the age of 13. They met at John Gleb High School, and she noticed him right away because he was angrily throwing a chair across the classroom. Ooh, What a bad boy. I want him. It just reminds me of that scene in The Grinch when he's little and he's like, I hate Christmas. And he's like throwing the tree across the room. And Martha May's like, the muscles. That was actually a perfect depiction. It actually was. You'd think that the relationship might help Kim with her feelings, you know, of being second best, but Lucas also came from a broken childhood, so let's get into that. Oh, they're perfect for each other. At the age of four, his parents went through a very violent divorce, and he was put into foster care with his brothers. He was later told that he could live with his aunt, so that's good. There were a number of concerns about his violence and aggression. He would punch and headbutt walls and doors. There were physical fights that broke out between him and his younger brother, and his aunt just, like, couldn't handle it. So she was seeking support from both child services and the police. He had previously self-harmed by cutting as well. So I'm seeing Kim self-harming. I'm seeing Lucas self-harming, both having traumatic childhoods, and somehow they just... (laughs) found their way to each other. It does not seem good. Just one short year after his parents' divorce, his mother actually passed away from leukemia, and he still had a very strained relationship with his father because of, you know, his dad's extreme drinking problems and even more other issues that I could get into for days, but this is not about his father. (laughs) In school, Lucas was actually very intelligent when it came to math class, but any academic success that he had was overshadowed by his anger issues and the many brawls he was involved in. So he was eventually kicked out of school, which is not surprising to anybody at this point, I believe. So Mm -mm. again, these two lovebirds and their troubled little souls found each other and just what comes next is nothing short of a tragic situation. Kim's mom expressed her disappointment and told Kim it was okay to be in a relationship, but they were far too young to be in a sexual relationship. The more she told Kim about her qualms, the more Kim went in the opposite direction, as children do. But it got to a point that was so bad that Elizabeth wouldn't even allow Lucas to come into their family home. So the two of them would meet in the garden, and she described the couple as a time bomb waiting to go off. 
Some good foreshadowing right there, I would say. In October of 2015, Kim and Lucas decided they were going to run away together. Six days later, they were found in a tent (laughs) in the woods. But the damage was already done. The hatred that Kim had for her mom bubbled inside of Lucas now as well. And now, Lucas's solution to the problem wasn't just to run away and never come back. He told Kim that they should kill her mother. Oh, there's <laughs> got to be another another way. You know, there are a lot of other things you could do. But apparently she casually replied, yeah, before realizing he was actually serious, <laughs> but still went along with it. In an episode of Kids Who Kill, Evil Up Close... <laughs> Psychologist Emma Kenny says the couple's troubled home lives and feelings of being unloved drew them to each other, creating a dark and dangerous mixture of emotions which spurred on their deadly revenge plot. He had previously been obsessed with the murder of his own father and how the people that killed him got away with it. So, Lucas is flying off the hinges, my friends. Psychologist Emma Kenny also tells The Sun online, if they hadn't met, none of this would have played out. Which I agree with. At midnight on April 13th, 2016, Lucas made his dream a reality after two failed attempts. So he had already tried to go through with this twice. He walked 30 minutes from his house to Kim's and knocked on the bathroom window three times so that she would know that it was him. They had like pre-planned that that was their signal. Kim let Lucas into the house through the bathroom window. This was their third and final attempt at murdering her mother. Jeez. He was carrying a bag of knives with him, which some sources say that Kim had the knives, like six different knives waiting for him, and then some sources say that he had four knives in a backpack. So either way, there were knives involved. He took one of the knives and went up to Elizabeth's room where she was fast asleep. Lucas then stabbed Elizabeth in the neck, Mm-mm. specifically targeting her voice box so that she couldn't make a sound. Mm, no. Elizabeth fought for 10 minutes while being suffocated with a pillow and stabbed. Kim was nervous that it was taking too long and went into her mother's room. Later, she confessed, I went into the room to see what was going on because I heard noises and stuff. So I just wanted to check to see if he was okay. Oh, see if he was okay. Yes. I read that sentence 80 times because I'm like, he went in to murder your mother. You heard noises and you went to go check to see if he was okay. What? I do not understand. At one point, she saw a hand coming out from the bed, and she touched it, thinking that it was Lucas's hand, but it was actually her mother's hand. And that was the last time she would ever touch her mother. Oh, my God. She instantly panicked, literally went into a panic attack, and she was actually supposed to kill her sister. (gasps) That was the original plan. Yes. So Lucas was going to kill the mom, and Kim was going to kill her sister, Katie. But now she was, like, in a full-blown panic attack, and she was down for the count. She couldn't do her part, so she asked Lucas if he would murder her sister as well. Lucas agreed that he would do it. Of course. So he took off his sneakers in order to not make a sound on the floorboards. Apparently the floorboards were pretty creaky. And made his way down to Kim's room because Kim shared a room with Katie. He murdered Katie the exact same way he murdered Elizabeth. He said, I thought I stabbed her, but I'm not 100% sure it was her or the mattress. And then I smothered her face with a pillow too. Court documents say that from the position of her body, it appeared that Katie might have tried to move away from Lucas. Her face was later covered with a sheet because Kim didn't like the smell of blood. Oh, okay. 
Oh, so sorry to inconvenience you, Kim. Maybe you shouldn't murder people then. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't murder your own sister in your own room, okay? Elizabeth was only 49 years old, and poor Katie had just turned 13. Oh my gosh. Okay, so as if the murder wasn't terrible enough, what they did after the murders was just beyond weird. They decided... Since they had a full house to themselves, oh, so they just play a little game of house. Yeah, just the two of them in a house. So why not act all wifey and hubby about it? Ew. Originally, their plan was to go through with the murders and then kill themselves with alcohol and pills. Very family murder suicide, family annihilator vibes. But they couldn't go through with it, so they took a bath together to wash off the blood Ew. because they didn't want to go downstairs and have the dog smell it. And then they had sex a lot in different positions in the house. Ew, why do they always do that? They always kill their parents and then just have sex in the house. I know. Disgusting. Uh, they ate ice cream and tea cakes. What? Mm-hmm. They're having and a tea party right now. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. And then they went back into Kim's bedroom where Katie's dead body was. They took Kim's mattress off of the bed frame and took it downstairs so that they could lay on it. Um, and then, <laughs> this is where it is, everybody. They decided that they would just relax on the couch and watch all the Twilight movies for a bit. I am disturbed. Like, they, they quite literally murdered her mom and her sister, and then they watched the Twilight saga. Those movies aren't even good enough to, to be doing that. Okay. 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 Well, <laughs> let's not let's not get too crazy. Great movies. Great. Films. Okay. No, watching those movies back <laughs> in 2021, I just why well, was everyone incredible. so obsessed with them? It's so corny. Well, that's the best part. It's just like awkward corny though. Like I'm sitting there with secondhand embarrassment. Yes, 100. percent If you couldn't have guessed it, that's where they got their name. They were then known as the Twilight Killers. It wasn't just one night that they decided to play house. They left the dead bodies in their respective areas for the next 36 hours. Disgusting. Well, yeah, while they just lived their life together. Disgusting. So how did they get caught, you might be asking? Well, one reason was because his aunt ended up reporting him as missing. And, well, Katie and Kim were both in school. So it obviously was pretty noticeable that they weren't there. And a wellness check was performed at their house. Kim's house was visited twice that day by, well, one, Lucas's aunt, and then by a police officer. The two of them were inside but didn't respond to any of the visits. The police officer returned to the address the following morning, and then again, there was no response, but he heard a dog barking from inside the house. The officer made a few inquiries about, you know, Elizabeth's workplace, if she had showed up, and then he checked with the school again, and he was told that there had been no contact with any of the Edwards family since the 13th of April. When the police had to literally break into the house, they found Kim and Lucas on the couch. Watching Twilight. Right. When the police asked the two of them what was going on, Lucas simply replied, why don't you go and look? I hate this guy. This little 13, 14-year-old frick. I keep forgetting that they're that young. In the words of a UK human, he's a wanker. (laughs) Actually, he's probably worse than that, but I don't really know. (laughs) I don't know the lingo. When Lucas was arrested, he replied, fuck life. That's a direct quote. Don't take it from me. No. 
The pathologists found that there were eight sharp force injuries found on the body of Elizabeth, five of which were on her hands, suggesting that she might have been trying to fend off her killer or defend herself. The remaining sharp force injuries were stab wounds, one located on her right shoulder, two to her neck. The stab wounds to the neck had resulted in injuries that were to her internal jugular veins. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't like the word jugular. Mm -mm. And one almost completely severed her windpipe. The cause of death was a stab wound to the neck, obviously. The injury would not have been instantly fatal, and there was evidence that she survived for a short period of time after they were inflicted. The degree of force was described as mild to moderate because the tracks of the wounds had not passed through any bone tissue so he didn't have incredible force when he was doing these things to the body of 13 year old katie there were two stab wounds to the neck one of which entered the left side resulting in a small defect within the right vertical artery which caused a moderate amount of bleeding but not sufficient enough of a volume to compromise her cerebral blood flow that cannot be ruled as her sole cause of death. Since her body was found with a pillow over her face, they examined her lungs, and that led them to the conclusion that she had died due to a hemorrhage from the stab on her neck and being smothered. The fact that there was injury to one of the vertebrae suggested that the force was more severe with her. The Detective Chief Inspector Martin Holby told the press about how strange the couple's actions were after they committed the crimes, and in an episode of CBS Reality's show, Voice of a Serial Killer, criminology professor David Wilson explained, the lack of genuine remorse or display of empathy is not unusual among those who murder multiple victims, but the level of disengagement with which Kim describes the crime and her motivations for doing it are highly unusual. And as her final confession shows, most disturbing of all is her egocentric belief that she was actually doing her victims a favor by having them murder. Uh. Professor Wilson added, In my eyes, as a criminologist, I've never heard a set of confessions to murder distilled with such a degree of simplicity or self-justification. One that suggests a staggeringly high level of psychopathy in a young perpetrator. It's almost as if Kim Edwards has contracted a hitman, as in Lucas, to obliterate those people that were closest to her. Literally. So that was some quotes from a criminologist professor that I thought were eye-opening. Yeah, to say the least. I believe him. I believe him. In the interview with Kim, she spoke about all of her prior issues with her mom and what led her and Lucas to the decision. She said she was relieved by their deaths. She admitted, and this is a real quote, I was okay with it. Just the fact that it happened so quickly, it gave me peace of mind because it wasn't like torture or anything. No, just murder. But she also weirdly said that she missed her sister, but she was happy that she was dead because there's no way she would have been able to cope with the loss of her mother. Oh. Her words were literally, (laughs) I was not killing my sister out of anger, and I miss her. But I was excited about killing my mother, and I was looking forward to it. Ew, that's... 
I hate them. I hate these people. Contrary to what some might think, now that the police were involved and they were being questioned, neither one of them attempted to blame the other person, and they kept their stories completely the same. Clinical psychologist Mike Berry listened to the tapes and told CBS Reality what came across was their calmness, which is what I just said. There was no attempt to really hide what they had done. In many ways, they were honest because the evidence was clearly against them, and she thought she was doing the right thing. She didn't feel she was doing anything horrendous. The problem was her mother, and disposing of her mother would solve her problems. It suggests a very naive approach to life. Thank you, Mike Barry. Thank you. Mic drop. Psychologist Dr. David Holmes also added, the two of them found each other and became a Bonnie and Clyde type of couple where it was them against the world and more specifically them against Kim's mother and her sister. It was quite clear, clinically clear, without a hint of remorse or tearfulness in any way. That kind of attitude is scary. This is a child who is astoundingly stark and scary. So those are just a few psychologists' perspectives on the crimes. I 100% agree with them. These kids are kids. They're kids, first of all. And they, I feel like they think they're living in a movie or something. Like, it's not real life. They're living in the Twilight movies. They're living in Twilight. That November, just a month after the murders, the two teenagers were tried at the Nottingham Crown Court, where Justice Haddon Cave sentenced them to a minimum of 20 years before being eligible for parole, which was appealed about a year later, so the sentences were actually changed to 17 and a half years. In their 30s, if they serve a whole sentence? Because they met when they were 13, so they're like 14 years old at this time. Obviously, you can't try them. They're children. And I was trying to read this gigantic judiciary court document. I will get into kind of the thought process of Justice Haddon Cave so that I can explain it. Oh, he can explain it a little better. He is the judge. Originally, Kim refused to plead guilty to murder and instead opted for a lesser charge of manslaughter, which was not accepted by the Crown Prosecution Services. Good. So that led to a trial. Justice Haddon Cave described the crimes as having, quote, few parallels in modern criminal history. He made it clear that, again, quote, People who know the full facts of this case may struggle to comprehend how you both could have committed this terrible and unnatural crime, which has devastated two families and a community. The answer lies partly, in my view, in what Dr. Joseph describes as your toxic relationship. You were, in my view, in a hermetically sealed, pathetic world of your own, of deep, deep selfishness and maturity, where your feelings and desires matter and nobody else's. I sentence you as children, which you are. I sentence based on hope for you and for society rather than in the expectation of failure. So obviously they're being tried as children because they're 14. And the judge is basically saying he doesn't want to try them as adults because he has hope for them in the future. That makes one of us. Yeah, I when I was reading, especially just like the last part, I sentence based on hope for you and for society rather than in the expectation of failure. I'm like, really? <laughs> I just was like sitting there reading it over and over again. I'm like, I just feel like maybe and this we're isn't a good it. idea. <laughs> no, and we're going to get into the psychology about it in like a few minutes, but I don't know. I just feel like personally... 
and I'm no judge, but <laughs> they had like no remorse whatsoever. Like, how are you going <laughs> to, they killed two people and they were like, Oh, better watch Twilight. <laughs> like again, quoting justice Haddon cave. This was an entirely joint offense. You were in it together from the beginning. You conceived the killings together. You planned it together. You replanned it when you failed to carry it out the first and second time. Mm -hmm. You carried it out together step by step. While you, Lucas, did the actual killings, you, Kim, willed it to happen and assisted all the way through. Both of you are perfectly intelligent and knew exactly what you were doing. Either of you could have backed out at any time, but you were selfishly determined to do it together, and you killed Kim's mother and her little sister, and you then reveled in what you had achieved. You both accept that you are equally liable as each other and should be treated equally, nor is any distinction suggested by counsel. I see no reason to distinguish between you in any way. Basically saying... There's no difference. Just because Lucas killed, did the actual killing, doesn't mean Kim is innocent in any way. Mm -hmm. I just love putting their actual words in it. I also love that all of their court vocabulary is so UK. They call it like high court. So fancy. And they were at the Nottingham Crown Court. This is so royal. (laughs) They're so fancy. They're just a classy, just a classy country. Can't relate. Can't (laughs) relate. A bid to stop their names being made public was rejected in the high court by Sir Brian Levison, Mr. Justice Blake, and Mr. Justice Lewis. Their reasons for lifting the ban, at least what the judge said the reasons were for lifting the ban, was it is impossible for the public properly to understand this case without knowing the identity of the defendants and that these murders took place in a closed family context. This singular fact informs and colors one's entire understanding of the case. Unless one knows this singular fact, it is impossible to understand the true motive behind the murders. Police evaluations didn't find either of the murderers to suffer from any recognized mental illnesses, but Kim did show signs of a personality disorder which cannot be diagnosed until she reaches the age of 18. Mm. Now that you know what the heck happened, we can get into the psychology of it all. Again, I am going to read straight from this judiciary document. It has like the seal on it and everything. So this is the real information. So we'll start with Lucas. When committing the murder, he had a sense of calmness and happiness surrounding the belief that he was protecting Kim. Ew. Just the word happiness. I know. I can't. Calmness and happiness. When questioned regarding his feelings and thoughts about his actions after he had time to reflect on them, he indicated limited remorse. He continued to present a disconnect from his actions, and he demonstrated no empathy toward the victims' families, presenting as still hostile towards them. So he's saying, like, I'd do it again if I had to. Doesn't surprise me at all. Lucas clearly had difficulties regulating and recognizing his own emotions, which led to conflicts and emotional difficulties. This predominantly led to episodes of aggressive and abusive language, along with threats of violence. While he displayed this behavior across all spectrums, aggression and verbal abuse was likely to be triggered by his experiencing a sense of loss of control or criticism, especially when delivered by an adult. So he had authoritative issues. 
Considering past and current behavior, there was a clear risk of interpersonal violence, including the intention to cause life-threatening injuries and with the use of weapons. A psychiatric report by Dr. Oliver White dated the 15th of August, 2016. I like that they put the number. <laughs> yeah, they do I the like number first. put dates. Yeah. The 15th of August, 2016. Just sounds cool. Anyway, a psychiatric report by Dr. Oliver White concluded that Lucas was not then suffering either from a severe or enduring mental illness or from a depressive episode. So he did not have any of those situations wrong with him. Although his mood instability was an important feature in his emerging personality structure, he recounted the history of his experience of domestic violence between his parents and the multiple different foster care placements which flowed from the breakdown of their relationship, accumulating in his life with his aunt from the age of four or five, which was around the time that his mother died of cancer, which we already spoke about. He had a long-standing difficult relationship with his father, which we talked about, uh, which was highly influenced by his father's drinking and lack of care, supervision, nurturing of him. A consequence of his experiences during his childhood was that he had a lack of opportunity to develop skills in self-regulation of his own emotions. He was assessed that his specific emerging personality traits were in the domains of emotionally unstable and dissocial personality disorder, but due to his age, he fell short of the formal diagnosis of a personality disorder. Dr. White assessed Lucas as a high risk of continuing his trajectory with regards of his personality development, such that formal diagnosis of personality disorder was likely when he became an adult. So similar to what they said about Kim, I think they have to wait until they're 18 to do any of those diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Is that the right word? Diagnoses? Mm -hmm. Did I just like know that off the top of my head like a smart little squirrel? You did. You didn't say diagnoses. (laughs) Gold star for me. In addition, a report dated... The 5th of September, 2016, Dr. Tracy King, a psychologist, concluded that there were no concerns regarding his intellectual functioning, such that might have led to a greater tendency to be influenced by others or to not understand consequences of his actions. He had a history of early childhood trauma in the form of exposure to domestic violence and his father's drinking behaviors. Already said that. These experiences had been shown to have organic neurochemical correlations in the brain. Wow. There could be gross alteration in the amygdala, which is your emotional center. These would be evident in adulthood and would lead to emotional regulation difficulties. His exposure to domestic violence and the fear that this would have been instilled in a young child's activated his primitive brain on the consistent fight or flight pathway. For him, this meant that minor threats and challenges could feel like real threats to his existence, so he could then act disproportionately to circumstances. When threatened, he was likely to experience a greater degree of dissociative symptoms than he reported. So a summary on Lucas psychologically, but it is clear that he could not emotionally regulate anything from a young age. I know, Erica, you love the whole nature versus nurture, so I feel like that has a lot that goes into it, but I mean, chemically, he was imbalanced. (laughs) 
And that's very clear. And I feel like emotional instability and like the inability to regulate your emotions often stems from mental illness. But obviously they were talking about his limbic system and the amygdala, which your emotions and your fear come from that. So like all that makes sense. But at the same time, I feel like there would be a mental illness. Exactly. Part of me wants to like real, like, I don't know. Part of me thinks that he probably would have gotten in some kind of trouble at one point, but if he hadn't met Kim, who also was not fully, you know, there with her emotions and stability, would he have murdered people? Like, would he have murdered people down the road? Probably eventually. I did say that he was a... Yeah, that's what I'm saying, but, like, did she play a key part in him doing it so early, I guess. I don't know. He was obsessed with whoever killed his own father and how they got away with it. So I think you're right. He probably would have murdered somebody down the line, but his relationship with Kim just really put them on that fast track. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Kim, let's talk about her psychology. This comes from the same court document. Wonderful document. Dr. Chakrabarty concluded that at the time of the offense, Kim had developed an adjustment disorder against a background of severe attachment problems due to multiple stressors within a short space of time, aggravated by her relationship with Lucas. The final stressor was when she found out that her belongings had been either thrown away or been given to her sister. (laughs) It's so juvenile, like in my head. That she's 13 years old and so upset that her sister is, like, getting hand-me-downs, basically. And that was the stressor that aggravated her final decisions. Yeah, and upset over that, but, like, not upset over murdering your family. Yeah, come on now. Dr. Chakrabarty went on to underline Dr. Spooner's description of Kim as a person who was emotionally vulnerable and had significant attachment problems with her mother. Kim's mental illness significantly impaired her ability to form a rational judgment, exercise self-control, and provided an explanation of her acts and omissions in doing and being part of a killing. Dr. Philip Joseph, that's two first names. (laughs) I always like names that are two first names, like Joe John or like... Something weird. Who's Joe John? You know, Joe John. (laughs) AKA Dr. Philip Joseph, (laughs) who, in a report dated the 22nd of September 2016, concluded that Kim was not suffering from an abnormality of mental functioning caused by a recognized medical condition and therefore did not have a defense of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The family dynamics were explored, and her attachment difficulties with her mother were noted. She explained the circumstances leading up to the killings of her mother and her sister, accepting that it was just jointly planned and that she was not forced to go along with anything. She was like, yeah, I wasn't forced to do any of this. I'm just along for the ride. Two peas in a pod. She saw her mother as the main problem in her life, felt excited about the thought of killing her, and remained glad that her mother was That makes me want to throw up. Like, what is wrong with you? Although she did feel bad about the death of her sister and missed her, which I have no sympathy for you because you, you did what you did. Dr. Joseph did not accept that the loss of her belongings triggered the acute stress reaction. Thank you, Dr. Joseph, which developed into an adjustment disorder. If she had been suffering from 
such a disorder, she would not now continue to express satisfaction for killing her mother. In the event, both psychiatrists gave evidence and the jury rejected the defense analysis of psychiatric position convicting of murder. Luna's got her face up in the mic. I don't know what she wants to say, but it must be important. Luna, let's hear it. Can I get a meow? (laughs) That was me. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The pre-sentence report dated the 25th of October, 2016 also made clear that Kim did not regret what happened and felt relieved that the offenses were committed. She was under the impression that she was emotionally abused by her mother and, as such, had no remorse or regret for what had happened to her. However, she said that she had little regret towards her sister because she was still young and did not deserve to die. Nonetheless, at the time of the index offense, she wanted her sister to be murdered because she had felt angry and resentful towards her. While it was clear that she had set out to kill her mother and sister and planned this to the last detail, the intent of committing suicide afterwards did not seem to have the same level of planning. AKA, she lied. She always planned to kill her sister. And it wasn't just so that she didn't miss her mom. She wanted to kill her sister because she thought that her mom loved her sister more than her. Tell them. I did. I just told them. (laughs) But they are true that the whole like committing suicide afterwards, I always thought that that was weird that they even said that they were going to do that because why would you completely plan out something to the T three different times, like try to play it out three different times and then not go through with the whole plan? Yeah. And the whole thing was like they wanted to be alive while their her mother and her sister weren't alive. So like they're not right. They wanted to have their little life together. So don't you try to play us like that. But yeah, guys, that's the case of the Twilight murders. That is wild. That is wild. And I just don't have much to say other than like, whoa. It reminds me of a case. Wait, did you really never hear any of that before? No. I think I told you about a case that it reminds me of where a girl started talking to this boy online chatting with him. And they plotted to kill the girl's parents. And I'm not going to say what okay. it was because I want to do it. I remember. I remember that one. But. Okay. I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember. I remember. <laughs> but I really did think that you were the one who told me about this one. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. Apparently. Apparently. I've never been on like television before. No. You ever seen that kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. and apparently i've never been on television before i'm losing it it's like early and i'm just not up i know sun is not shining and the tank is not clean but i'm glad that i did a case that you don't know anything about yeah that's cool because you always do cases i ain't no shit about right it's fun keeps you on your toes it is were you on your toes did i do i was at the edge of my seat I know. I saw you. <laughs> Even Luna jumped up. She had another thing. <laughs> she had some opinions. Like, what are you saying? All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Yes. If you guys are feeling super awesome and cool, you can go subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave us a review if you really like us because it does help us out a lot. Yes. And go ahead and... 
you know, post the podcast on your story. You can share directly from any of the streaming platforms. You can share our posts to your story, give us a little shout out, and we'll give you a little shout out in return on the next episode. And shout out to our UK listeners. This one goes out to y'all. If you got any more cases, let me know. Yeah, give us some cases, people. I know you know some. I know you know. I know you know. (laughs) And why don't y'all follow us? I know y'all be listening, mm-hmm. so why don't you follow us? Crime on Caffeine at all social media. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a little aggressive, but we would appreciate it. We really would. <laughs> all right. Thank you guys for listening. We will catch you on the next one. Bye.